A Russian missile strike on an apartment building kills dozens in the Ukrainian city of Dnipro. Emergency crews are searching for survivors. It's Tuesday, January 17th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, China records its first population decrease in six decades. Experts say it could have a major impact on the country's economy. Also this hour, new data show police are taking longer to respond to emergencies in many major cities. In some places, the wait time has nearly tripled. If your house is being broken into and you need the police there, in four minutes and they get there in seven minutes, it makes a huge difference. And Tesla CEO Elon Musk goes on trial for a tweet he made back in 2018. In sports, the Celtics and Bruins both celebrate big wins, cloudy and warmer today with temperatures in the mid 40s. It's 7.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The wave of storms in California that brought weeks of flooding is easing. From member station KQED, Mari Balaños reports 20 people have been killed. After about 17 days of intense rain across the state, people living in Southern California can expect drier weather starting today. Those living along the north and central coasts and parts of Northern California will probably have to wait until Thursday as light showers are expected to hit those areas on Wednesday. While the storms are coming to an end, the National Weather Service cautions that flooding will remain a risk as runoff hits rivers and creeks. For NPR News, I'm Madi Bolaños in San Francisco. President Biden's personal lawyers said over the weekend they found five more classified documents in his Delaware home. But the discovery was made last Thursday. Other classified documents were discovered in early November, but no announcement was made until this month. Republican lawmakers, including House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, say Biden is not being timely about the disclosures. White House tried to say it was all cleared up on Thursday, and now that we find there's more documents, I think there's a lot of questions that uh, continue to raise, and we want to get all the information possible. They're also demanding to know why the FBI hasn't searched Biden's house, as agents did former President Donald Trump's home last year. In that case, the Justice Department needed a search warrant to retrieve scores of documents in Trump's Florida resort. President Biden is set to welcome the Prime Minister of the Netherlands to the White House today. Biden and Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte are expected to discuss the war in Ukraine. Ukrainian officials do not expect to find any more survivors in an apartment building in the city of Dnipro. Russian forces hit it with a missile over the weekend, killing more than 40 people, including children. Russia is blaming Ukrainian defensive actions, but Ukraine says that's not true. China's population has shrunk for the first time in about six decades. China released statistics this week showing the country has 850,000 fewer people than it did the year before. NPR's Emily Fang has more. China still has more than 1.4 billion people, but its population is now shrinking. One of the biggest reasons is people are having fewer children. Mothers had about 9.5 million babies last year, but that's nearly a 10 percent drop from the year before. This is despite China's efforts to increase family sizes. For nearly four decades, China capped couples to just one child, then lifted those caps to three children in 2021. But the cost of childcare, education, later marriages, and more divorces have continued to push down birth rates. That's worried economic policymakers, because a demographic crunch means China will soon have far more senior citizens than working adults. Emily Fang, NPR News. You're listening to NPR News. From Washington. 
From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. State lawmakers are refiling a bill to create a municipal building authority. State Senator Ed Kennedy says the bill would help communities pay for construction of municipal buildings. I think there's a lot of communities in Massachusetts, small communities, that would have an appreciation for a bill like this. It's expensive and it's a, it's a big burden, really, on small communities. Kennedy says he has also filed a bill to create an authority to fund public safety buildings. He says doing so would divert less than a penny from the taxes on each sales transaction. State regulators are aiming to wrap up their vetting of online sports betting companies this week. The Gaming Commission will meet today with representatives of the Points Bet Sportsbook. Later this week, the commission plans to vote on whether the company and a handful of its competitors should be licensed to operate in Massachusetts. Online sports betting is on track to become legal in the state in March. Spring and summer ferry reservations to Nantucket are now open to the general public. Those reservations cover dates from May 18th through October 23rd. Steamship Authority spokesman Sean Driscoll says holiday and weekend spots fill quickly. The more flexible you can be in your travel arrangements, the better. I mean, there will still be plenty of spaces for the summer after the general openings, but it might not be the the Friday night departures and the Sunday returns. You know, it might be a midweek travel date. The more flexible you can be on that, the better. General reservations for Martha's Vineyard open next Tuesday. A small town in Maine, just over the New Hampshire border, is getting worldwide attention for selling a mega millions ticket worth $1.3 billion. WBUR's Josie Gorino spoke to the owner of the store that sold the winning ticket. Fred Cutro's phone rang at 6 o'clock Saturday morning. I thought it was a scam. But it wasn't. An actual lottery official told Cutro that his country store in Lebanon, Maine, sold the winning Mega Millions ticket. Since then, it's been all microphones and cameras. I was actually on the radio in Col- in the country of Colombia this morning. This is worldwide. I, I, got a, I got a message from a friend in Australia that I was on the news in Australia. Cutro says since selling the winning ticket, he's become a lucky charm for lottery players. My general manager here just rubbed my bald head for luck. She thinks it's funny. Cutro's cut for selling the winning ticket is $50,000. He plans to divvy up the money among staff and maybe do something for the town. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Josie Guarino. It's 7.06. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Simon & Schuster, publisher of Master, Slave, Husband, Wife, An Epic Journey from Slavery to Freedom by Ilyan Wu, the true story of an enslaved couple's daring escape. Available now. The Celtics beat the Hornets yesterday by double digits with a final score of 130-118. to They return home to the Garden Thursday to face the Golden State Warriors. And it was a big win at home in the Garden for the Bruins yesterday. They shut out the Flyers 6-0. to It was an extra special win for B's center David Krejci. He was playing his 1,000th NHL game. The Bruins are on the road in New York tomorrow. They take on the Islanders at 7.30. In your forecast, cloudy today and a lot warmer than yesterday with highs reaching the mid-40s. Tonight, a slight chance of rain showers before 8 p.m. Temperatures will drop about 10 degrees to the mid-30s. Tomorrow, partly sunny and warmer with a high near 50 degrees. It's 32 degrees in Boston right now at 7.07. WBUR supporters include Yarl and Pamela Moon, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington. China's population is officially shrinking. After years of the population declining, last year, for the first time, hundreds of thousands more people died than were born. To talk about the implications of this for China and the rest of the world, we're joined by Stuart Gietel-Bastin. He's a professor of social science at Hong Kong University of Science and Technology and Khalifa University in Dubai, where he is now. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. So let's start with why. Why is China's population shrinking? So this is primarily as the structural change of low fertility, which has been in place now for oh, 40, more than 40 years. Um, and um, of course, what happens over time is when you have prolonged low fertility rates, that means you have fewer women, fewer girls being born, who then grow up to become, uh, um, you have smaller number of women of childbearing age. So then even when they're, even if the fertility rates stay the same, you end up with a a, a smaller number of births, a lower number of births. Yeah. And then of course, in recent years, COVID has really exacerbated this as it has in countries all over the world because of the kind of economic insecurity, the impact on jobs, but then also the challenges of working from home and, and, and having a, a family under these challenging circumstances, which have been particularly difficult in China. So it's really exacerbated and, and, and exaggerated this uh, shift in uh, fertility. But what does this mean now for the economy, for the labor force? China is an economic powerhouse now. It's emerged as the second largest economy in the last few decades. What does this mean if there's less people to work? Well, I think it, it's it's. I would say that it's a challenge rather than a than a crisis mm-hmm. in this sense. It's it's going to require new ways of thinking about this kind of demographic, the new demographic paradigm, right? That the era of rapid growth, of double digit growth, of uh, of, uh, of cheap labour, of um, of a younger uh, labour for, uh, labour force. You know that era is now really at a close. I think that's what today really shows us. And so what China is going to need to do is to respond to this. And and, it, and in fairness, it, it has been doing this for some time. You know, this is not a big surprise to the Chinese government. It has pivoted towards, um, uh, you know, responding to an aging population through uh, increasing uh, investment in health and in, and, in, and, in, and in poverty to ensure that everybody, age, people age well, of developing social work systems, of planning to change the pension system and and so on and then also have to increase productivity now that's much easier said than done of course um, but there's really still a lot of levers that can be pulled in china and i suppose and the last thing is that china's political system is very different to you know the american political system and the, or the british political system in that it it can make it easier to make these kind of long-term structural plans and structural changes over the next 5, 10, 20, 30 years to adapt to this particular, uh, this this new uh, situation. How will this impact uh, China's economic growth, though? Well, <laughs> it's impossible to say. I mean, I think that, as I say, that it's it, it will depend entirely on how the government implements the, the current five-year plan and then what the next five-year plan looks like. It is harder, without a doubt, to generate the kind of economic growth that it has seen under the current demographic circumstances and the projected demographic circumstances. 
Is that inevitable that that means that economic growth will flatline? No, it is not. Is it going to be difficult to, um, to readapt, to change, to adapt the economy, to try to make the best of this, right? To, to try mm-hmm. to do more with less, if you will. Well, yes, it is possible. Stuart Geetel Bastin is a professor of social science at Hong Kong University of Science and Technology and Khalifa University in Dubai, where we've reached him. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. The Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte is at the White House this week. He'll meet with President Biden, where he'll discuss the war in Ukraine and also semiconductors. The U.S. and the Netherlands are both global leaders in semiconductor technologies, and the U.S. wants the Dutch to cut off competitors, specifically China. It's part of a wider strategy by the Biden administration to curb tech exports to China. For more, let's turn to John Bateman. He's a senior fellow in the Technology and International Affairs Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. John, you've described this as the boldest leap toward technological decoupling by the U.S. so far, but why do you think they need to be careful how it's done? Well, there's a lot of legitimate concerns with uh, China's rise in its use of advanced technology. Uh, Semiconductors, for example, could be used for uh, military purposes. They could be used for surveillance and human rights violations. Uh, But at the same time, if the U.S. moves too fast and too far to cut off the technological relationship with China, uh, and I see that as an example of what's been done with these sweeping new export controls on semiconductors, uh, there's a lot of damage that we could do to American interests as well. Uh, We could create competitive disadvantages for U.S. companies and make it harder for them to get the funds and the talent that they need to stay ahead. Um, We could alienate our own allies and partners. Uh, countries like the Netherlands by imposing unilateral restrictions that affect foreign friendly companies equally to American companies. Uh, And then Americans really need to understand the damage that's being done to U.S.-China relations, which is in such a terrible state right now. And we're putting our allies in a tough spot, right? Kind of between a rock and a hard place. China and the world that we have a kind of quasi-containment strategy where we're really trying to impair China's technological development at a broad and fundamental level. Uh, The harder it will be to cooperate with China on issues like climate, public health, um, and in a worst case, to avoid a war. Now, um, what are the potential long-term consequences of this pressure strategy against China on the global economy? Uh, I'm sorry, I, I got cut off there. Could you repeat the question? Sure. What, what are the potential long-term consequences of this uh, pressure strategy against China on the global economy? When we think about the gradual disconnection of the two major economies in the world, and we're not at a total divorce yet, but we're moving toward lesser and lesser technological and economic interdependence. Uh, We're really talking about a partial rollback of uh, some of the most important links that we've seen in decades of globalization. Um, So it's getting harder for Chinese students and researchers and STEM talent to come to the United States. Uh, We have more tariffs, more export controls, uh, a growing set of financial controls and bans on Chinese technology. And we're seeing similar moves in China itself and by other governments. Uh, So... As we move farther in this direction, uh, we're really 
planning to uh, duplicate a lot of supply chains that um, have been globally integrated in the past, uh, which is a very costly proposition. Um, at the same time, there could be a more fractured uh, scientific ecosystem, so it could be harder for the best experts to collaborate across international lines. Um, and then also on a more qualitative level, uh, fewer and fewer people-to-people -people ties, which has been an important ballast in the relationship. That's John Bateman, Senior Fellow in the Technology and International Affairs Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. John, thanks. Thank you. The war in Ukraine is still going on, but some Ukrainians are already thinking about what life could be like after the war ends. And so are companies that have operations there. Uber's CEO just paid a visit to Kyiv, and NPR's Tim Mack took a ride with him. Compared to Kyiv before the war, this night in the city is especially dark. Full neighborhoods of Ukraine's capital city lack power. Many traffic lights don't operate. And one of the main sources of light on the street are from passing cars. In this case, an Uber, carrying the chief of the San Francisco-based rideshare company. I'm Dara Khazrashahi. I'm the CEO of Uber. In the back of the dark car, he said he's in the war-torn city to review the charitable work Uber has been doing in Ukraine, as well as to meet with local drivers. We first focused on refugees, making sure that refugees who wanted to go to Poland, wanted to cross the border, etc., we provided free rides for them. We're working now with the Ministry of Culture to give transportation to folks who are trying to retain pieces of art and culture and restore those pieces of art and culture that have been damaged by the war. The start of the full-scale war in Ukraine last February briefly stopped Uber's operations in the country. They were active in nine cities when the war started. The government asked us to expand our services and we wanted to be responsive. Uh, so we're now in 18 cities across the country. There are unique challenges to operating Uber during a time of war. Nightly curfews, missile attacks, air alarms, cell phone disruptions, and power outages all create problems for local residents when they might need to summon a ride the most. The people here are super, super creative, but I can't say that there's a playbook for operating in this kind of an environment. We're just doing the best we can right now. Like many other business owners, Khazar Shahi is starting to imagine what this country might look like after peace is established and the economic opportunities that might create. However, he said he hasn't been in any talks with Ukrainian businesses about acquisitions. We'll worry about business after the war is over and after the Ukrainian people are victorious. But he's confident that Western businesses will be eager to invest in Ukraine once the war is finished. I would say that I'm very optimistic. Uh, you really do see the spirit of the Ukrainian people here, the resilience, but even beyond that, you see the entrepreneurial energy here. The underdog story in Ukraine that's going on right now, he said, speaks volumes about the nation's ability to rebuild once it's all over. Tim Mack, NPR News, Kyiv.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, we get the perspective of a newly sworn-in representative. Democrat Andrea Salinas of Oregon talks about joining Congress after fighting an expensive campaign against a Republican multimillionaire. It's 719. Donate your old car to WBUR. It'll have a new life supporting the news, and you could get a tax deduction. Go to WBUR.org slash cars, and thanks. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by William James College's Graduate Certificate in Classroom Mental Health for Teachers. Improve classroom culture and maximize learning. More at williamjames.edu. I'm Deepa Fernandes. You've heard of governments having a cabinet position for education, but what about early childhood education? We need significant investments to fully fund our prenatal to five system in this country. New Mexico's Early Childhood Secretary shares priorities for childcare assistance. That's next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. We warm up to the mid-40s today under increasingly cloudy skies. There's a slight chance of showers this evening and temperatures fall to the mid-30s. Tomorrow, partly sunny and a little warmer in the upper 40s. It's 32 degrees in Boston at 720. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from PBS with Zora Neale Hurston claiming a space from American Experience, a new biography of the influential author and anthropologist, tonight at 9, 8 central on PBS. And from Mattress Firm, dedicated to providing personalized service with the goal of helping people sleep well so they can live well. Customers can shop their range of products in-store or online at mattressfirm.com. And from Noom, providing an online evaluation and the tools to help people lead healthier lives through behavior change. More information at Noom, N-O-O-M dot com. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faudel. And I'm A. Martinez. Freshman lawmakers got an early taste of legislative dysfunction earlier this month in the U.S. House of Representatives. They were sworn in four days later than anticipated as Republicans went through a historic 15 rounds of voting before finally selecting a House Speaker. It was confusing and it does not bode well, I feel like, for the rest of the session and Republicans being in charge. That's freshman Representative Andrea Salinas, a Democrat from Oregon. She shared her thoughts on her first few chaotic days in Congress. We were in limbo. I didn't know what I could actually work on in terms of my committee. It was it was a rough four days. We kept thinking, oh, we're going to turn a corner here. I think it's foretelling of the chaos that the Republican Party has sown so far. This demonstrates their inability to govern in a reasonable fashion. What were your conversations, if you had any, with any Republicans in Congress? The, the Republican Party, just like the Democratic Party, is not a monolith. And I know many were frustrated with uh, 15 rounds of votes. Um, I think many of them were happy with the way things turned out. This Republican Party will be beholden to the extreme far rights who we saw were instrumental in the insurrection and were instrumental in causing um, chaos during the last uh, legislative session and the transfer of power in the presidency. So I think it's a mixed bag. 
Tell us what it was like sitting in the chamber, though. Were you at any point thinking, is this going to have a resolution? Definitely. It it puts, I feel like, the not just the House of Representatives and us as individuals, but the, the entire country in a state of uncertainty when you don't really know what could happen next. I'm eager to get started on my committee assignments and start really working for the people of Oregon, but it was uncertain. So just uh, to be clear, what exactly could you do and what could you not do? First off, I didn't know and I still don't know what my committee assignments are. I think a lot of the negotiations that were going back and forth with the Republicans within their own caucus were around committee assignments and who would be placed on which committees. We are still left out of those conversations right now. And so I still don't really have my committee assignments and I don't know where I can be most influential. There are some things that are really important to my district, like the the Farm Bill reauthorization, where I know they'll want me to make sure I influence that bill so that our specialty farms can get what they need. So there are things like that, which are critically important. It, you know, it requires legislation, it requires work in the committees. And so that is something that I was not able um, to do and, it, and still can. I still feel very hamstrung around that. Considering the term of a House member is only two years, it's not like the Senate. Senate has six years. It's only four days, but I mean, four days seems like a lot if you only got two years. That's right. And that's how I was feeling. As a freshman member, you really are low man on the totem pole. And a lot of this work is about relationships and making sure that people understand the importance of your issues and your district's issues um, to the other 434 members. I understand you had some family with you to uh, watch you get sworn in. What did you tell them day after day after day when the swearing in didn't happen? I had independent members of my family, Republicans, Democrats, and they watched it unfold like I was watching it. And I just kept telling them we will only know by an hour to hour basis. We kept thinking perhaps the next vote, oh, this could be it. But a few of them were there till Friday morning, but not until Saturday morning. They had all gone home. So none of them saw me get sworn in. So it was certainly disappointing. Did you have any dinner reservations at a place to celebrate? Did you have to keep putting them off? On a basic, basic level, uh, Congresswoman, what are some of the things that maybe uh, we don't know that you maybe had planned that you couldn't do because of the delay? So my team was amazing, and we were prepared for a state of chaos and confusion. All of my family members, I think, were there the night before swearing in, and we did have a reservation, so I made sure that I could convene with all of them. And, you know, it was a really um, emotional and, um, you know, personal time for me. My my uncle um, from Texas, he, he brought me my grandfather's visa application and my grandmother's naturalization papers. He had those framed from when they came over from Mexico many, many years ago. So it was a very personal time for me and my family. But we did it the night before, knowing that there may not be time to celebrate. And so I gave them a tour that night of the Capitol, a private tour, and it was lovely. And now that you are sworn in, what's your experience been like in those days that uh, you're official? It's been great. I'm back in the district now. I'm getting ready for some um, district meetings, which I'm really excited about to make sure that I know exactly what it is that people want. You know, our city city councilors, our mayors, county commissioners, those types of meetings, and then starting to meet with some of our, our growers in the district and um, a lot of constituents. Because honestly, like my goal this entire time has been to put people over politics. It will be about delivering. And so I feel like I'm a bit more equipped now to actually do that. Tell us about uh, the race that got you to D.C. in the first place. I mean, it just seemed from the outside looking at that race that it was a bruising battle. 
Oh, it was the you know we had a really tough primary. I was up against nine um, nine Democrats in the primary, and one outspent me um, tremendously. And then the general election was also really tough. Um, I had a an opponent who was a self funder, multimillionaire, and he spent a lot of money on his race as well. So both both my primary and general were bruising, but the voters came forward, and you know I won, and I think they want to see me again deliver for the people of this district. You're one of the first Latinas elected to represent Oregon, and you recently got picked to serve as a freshman representative in the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. How significant are markers like those for you? Oh, they're huge. I'm part of the Latino community and have been working with our community for a number of years and making sure that I deliver um, here at the state level in Oregon. And I think there are there's a lot of work to be done across the nation right now for Latinos. And so I'm eager. Yes, and you are correct. This this district is 20 percent Latino. It's the largest Latino district in Oregon. And to have a Latina representing this district is vitally important to making sure that um, we have a voice at the table. So I'm excited to make sure I help to lead um, this community at the national level. That's freshman representative Andrea Salinas, a Democrat from Oregon. Thank you very much. Thank you. A. Take care. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up here on Morning Edition, staffing shortages are being blamed for longer response times by police in cities across the country. It's 729. Stay updated on upcoming WBUR events at City Space and throughout Greater Boston by signing up for the WBUR events newsletter. You'll get a heads up about events like one on February 6th. That's when James Beard award-winning celebrity chef Ming Tsai will be at City Space to discuss her love of East-West cooking. Subscribe to the newsletter for that and more at WBUR.org slash newsletters. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Jury selection begins today in a California courtroom where Tesla CEO Elon Musk is being sued. Shareholders of the electric car company say tweets from Musk in 2018 cost them billions of dollars. Laura Kolodny is a tech reporter with CNBC. She says the lawsuit centers on Musk's tweets about a potential $72 billion buyout of Tesla that never materialized. The judge and jury are going to have to decide whether Musk's tweets had a material effect on the stock price and whether investors were relying on his tweets and statements. And then if there were any damages, they'll have to sort of figure out who should be liable to pay and, and what level of damages. If Musk and Tesla lose, it probably won't you know, break his bank. But the SEC would feel very vindicated. That trial is taking place in San Francisco. Ukraine's president is urging the U.S. and other Western countries to speed up their supplies of weapons to his country. In his nightly video address, Volodymyr Zelensky said his military needs more tanks. Poland's president, Andrzej Duda, says his country is trying to help with that request. 
We are trying to organize a bigger uh, support for, for Ukraine. So we hope that there is a few partners, a few allies who will give thanks to Ukraine. Duda was speaking at the World Economic Forum. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Mayor Michelle Wu will soon have a new public safety advisor. That's the person responsible for tracking crime in the city and coming up with ways to prevent it. Isaac Yablo will step into the job next month. He previously helped lead the city's Office of Black Male Advancement. Yablo tells the Boston Globe that as a public safety advisor, he wants to focus on reducing risk factors that lead to violence. A group of homeowners on Nantucket say they will remove a controversial erosion shield after a decade-long fight. The decision comes as the Islands Conservation Commission says the group did not follow proper permitting for the project. The shield is made from 900-foot geotubes that are filled with sand. Environmental groups say the structure throws off the beach's natural erosion process and damages other parts of the island. The homeowners say they're working with town officials to find a way to prevent erosion. Former Massachusetts Senator and current U.S. Special Envoy for Climate John Kerry is backing the United Arab Emirates' pick to lead international climate talks. That's despite the fact that some activists say Sultan al-Jaber's work as head of a state-run oil company disqualifies him for the role. Kerry says he believes al-Jaber is committed to reducing carbon emissions. The oil-rich UAE will host the annual U.N. Climate Change Conference later this year. Local ski enthusiasts are celebrating yesterday's winter weather. The lack of snow and sub-freezing temperatures so far this season are impacting the region's ski areas. Alan Fletcher is president of Neshoba Valley Ski Area in Westford. This year has been just kind of up and down through the month of December and up and down through the month of January so far. But it's it hasn't really been on a cold roll, if you if you will, uh, and we're hoping for that to happen at some point. Fletcher says ski resorts rely on sub-freezing temperatures to make snow when it's not naturally occurring. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. The Celtics are coming off a two-game sweep in Charlotte. Yesterday, the team beat the Hornets by 12 points. Jason Tatum was the C's leading scorer with 51 points. It's the fifth time he's scored 50 points or more this season, which means he's surpassed Larry Bird's record. The Celtics will return home to the Garden on Thursday, where they'll take on the Golden State Warriors. And the Bruins are also celebrating a big win. They defeated the Philadelphia Flyers yesterday at the Garden. The final score was 6-0. to The team will play on the road tomorrow against the New York Islanders. In your forecast, a high near 44 today under increasingly cloudy skies. Low 30s tonight. Tomorrow, a high near 49 and partly sunny. A high of 41 on Thursday, mostly cloudy skies. It's 32 degrees in Boston right now at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. Siamak Namazi is an Iranian-American who has been imprisoned in Iran for more than seven years. He was arrested in 2015 during a trip to Iran. The following year, his father, Bakr, was also imprisoned while trying to visit his son. Bakr was released on medical grounds. In October, he was allowed to leave Iran. But Siamak remains behind bars. Jared Genser is the Namazi family's lawyer. He's released a letter that CMAC wrote to President Biden saying he was beginning a seven-day hunger strike. I think he's desperate, despondent, heartbroken, and also angry, kind of all at the same time. Uh, you know, he has been given a series of promises over many years by multiple U.S. administrations, President Obama, President Trump, President Biden, that his case was a top priority and that they would get it resolved and they would be able to bring him home. And it just simply hasn't happened. And so he has gone on this seven-day hunger strike to mark seven years since he was left behind. And he's written a letter to President Biden that was delivered to the office of uh, the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, for the president, where he says he wants President Biden to spend one minute a day. That's all the time he's asking for, one minute a day over the next seven days, simply just thinking about him and the plight of other American hostages and working on trying to finally bring them home. Do you have hope? that anything will change. As you said, he's been, I think in your words, left behind by now the three administrations. We know that there are discussions underway between the U.S. and Iran to try to resolve the current set of hostage cases. You know, at the end of the day, we can't forget who's responsible for his detention. It's obviously, you know, the Iranian regime and not uh, any U.S. government administration. But when you see things like Brittany Griner brought home, but the American Paul Whelan left behind, as you might imagine for CMAQ, That really triggered a whole range of further fears that he might be left behind again. And obviously you're referring to the basketball player, Brittany Griner, who was imprisoned in Russia for months. And the Biden administration did negotiate her release, but a much longer term American who'd been in prison there didn't get to come home to his family. I did want to ask what it's been like for CMAC in prison. You said it's been very difficult. What I would say is that the first two years were literally like hell on earth. He was in the um, intelligence wing of the prison and was, you know, in solitary confinement, was subjected to daily interrogations, was repeatedly beaten and tased, was psychologically tortured on top of physical torture. He was told that his father had died of a heart attack and it took a week until they told him that, sorry, just kidding, he didn't really die. You know, he was also, you know, in a room, a teeny room with a concrete floor and no bedding of any kind, not even a pillow, Um, you know, and this was two years of his time there. Once he was ultimately convicted and given a bogus conviction for collaborating with an enemy state referring to the United States and given a 10-year prison term, he was moved into the general ward of Evan Prison where the conditions are better, but still not great. You know, he shares a cell with multiple people. They have the ability to uh, watch Iranian television, to get access to Iranian newspapers and to be with other prisoners as well. So it's less terrible than the first two years, which were extraordinarily horrific. But nonetheless, he's seeing his life waste away one year at a time. What does a seven-day hunger strike look like for your client? This is the first time he's done this in the seven and a half years that he has been imprisoned. And he just felt that now is the right time to do it with repeated promises by the Biden administration that they would find a way to negotiate his freedom and all of them having come for to naught. As you can imagine, um, he just feels like people just keep telling him what he wants to hear, but take no action. And this is time to the anniversary of the Iran deal? Monday was the seven-year anniversary of the Iranian nuclear deal. If President Biden were listening to this broadcast right now, what would be the one thing you would say to him? 
The one thing that I would say to President Biden is you need to put aside any political considerations and the blowback of cutting a deal, which undoubtedly will result in criticism from many directions. And you have to do what's right. And you have to look to your own moral compass and understand the responsibility that you as the former vice president under President Obama has for having left CMAC behind seven years ago, having promised his family he'd be home within weeks and where we are today. And so I would ask President Biden to make the tough call and to do what's necessary to bring CMAC and Mozzie and the other American hostages home. And I'm just curious what you think Biden can or will give up for your client. I think the bottom line is that he needs to do what's necessary to bring CMAC and the other American hostages home. And the administration would know much better than me what the options would be to do that. Nonetheless, I think prior deals suggest various potential ways forward. There are a range of possibilities that could be there, which would include prisoner swap or an unfreezing of some amount of Iranian funds and putting it into a humanitarian channel that could only be used strictly for humanitarian goods. These are the kinds of things that have been done in the past and clearly would be an option now. I mean, at the end of the day, Iran wants to be paid for these hostages. I mean, they have a policy of taking foreigners as hostages as a key part of their own foreign policy. And it's a tough time to be making a deal with Iran on anything, obviously. But at the end of the day, President Biden's responsibility is to help American citizens in harm's way abroad when they've done nothing wrong. That was Jared Gunser, a lawyer working with imprisoned Iranian-American Siamak Namazi and his family. The State Department is aware of the letter and the hunger strike. In a statement, spokesperson Ned Price tells NPR that officials are working, quote, ceaselessly to bring Namazi home and other wrongfully detained U.S. citizens as well. Police response times are getting longer. That's according to a new analysis of the average time it takes cops in 15 cities to respond to calls ranging from low-priority vandalism to acts of violence. As NPR's Martin Costi reports, the longer waits come as police departments struggle to keep enough officers on staff. There isn't a national program tracking police response times, but some cities gather and publish their own stats. Jeff Asher, a crime analyst who publishes on Substack, compiled the numbers for 15 of those cities. A lot of the larger agencies, New Orleans, Nashville, Portland, New York City, Seattle, are seeing reasonably sizable increases in the average response time. But those increases vary a lot. In New Orleans, average response times almost tripled from 51 minutes in 2019 to 146 minutes last year. In New York, the number jumped less from 18 minutes to 33. Asher says these figures are just a sampling of what's going on nationally, but the trend seems clear. I also found somewhere between five and seven cities that don't publish the data, but they've had media reporting in 2022 talking about how much longer police response times have gotten. So we may not have the actual numbers, but the anecdotes are telling us that these 15 cities are not the only places that this is happening. None of this surprises Chuck Wexler. The national conversation among police is staffing is the number one issue. Wexler runs the Police Executive Research Forum. He says older officers are quitting or retiring at a faster rate, and new recruits are harder to come by. He calls longer response times an early warning sign that the staffing shortages are now starting to have an effect. If your house is being broken into when you need the police there in four minutes and they get there in seven minutes, it makes a huge difference. Some departments have tried to make up for officer shortages by shifting non-emergency work and some mental health calls to civilians. But some of those cities report hiring and training civilians has also been slow. Martin Costi, NPR News. 
This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Coming up next on Morning Edition, the number of doulas who focus on death rather than birth has increased since the pandemic. They help guide people through the process of dying. And in our next hour, what the resignation of Germany's defense minister may say about that country's support for Ukraine in its defense against Russia. In your forecast, clouds move in throughout the day today and temperatures will be in the low to mid 40s. Tonight, mostly overcast and in the mid 30s, partly sunny and upper 40s tomorrow, then mostly cloudy and low 40s on Thursday. It's 33 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eversource. Eversource knows the role energy plays in life for you and your family. And because of that understanding, in times like these, they offer plans that can help this winter. To see if you qualify, you can visit Eversource.com. Now in business news, business owners in Massachusetts are expecting the economy to pick back up this year. John Hurst is president of the Retailers Association of Massachusetts. He says rising interest rates are helping to curb inflation, and he hopes action by the Federal Reserve will avoid a recession. If there's a recession, it'll be short and shallow. By the time we get towards the second half of 2023, hopefully, uh, consumers will be feeling uh, their balance sheets will be stronger, and that will lead to stronger balance sheets on Main Street as well. Hearst says sales are still being impacted by the pandemic, but will bounce back later this year. The former headquarters for BJ's Wholesale Club in Westboro will become a life sciences and manufacturing campus. The building was sold on Friday for $32 million. The Worcester Business Journal reports there's no timeline for when construction on the new development might start. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's Gummies. Designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faudel. And I'm Martinez. Talking about dying can be uncomfortable, awkward, and heartbreaking. But a growing number of people called end-of-life doulas are working to make conversations about the inevitability of death easier for patients and their families. Sarah Whitmire from member station WFIU reports. Kelly McLaughlin makes her way to the couch in her Carmel, Indiana living room, using her cane so she doesn't lose her balance. Her husband, Ryan, is nearby. The strain she is under is written all over their faces. It's been a grueling couple of weeks, not just with the information and decisions we've had to make, but just that turn of the corner of, yes, I'm going to die from this. Kelly found out in 2021 she has brain cancer. It's glioblastoma, stage four, the same kind of cancer that Joe Biden's son, Beau, and U.S. Senator John McCain died from. After surgery a year ago, Kelly's cancer is already back. It's resistant to treatment. It's like shooting BBs at a grizzly bear and thinking you're going to do something. End-of-life doula Angela Hershey is here today to listen, provide support, and hopefully just help Kelly relax. As long as we've been living, we've been dying. And so death doulas are really an ancient role. 
Angela's been on Kelly's care team since August, helping the family and talking with them about the practical and emotional details of dying. Angela begins lighting incense and laying out an assortment of healing stones and flowers on a small table. Anyone can call themselves a death doula. No license is required and no accreditation agency oversees them. However, Alvin Harmon, the head of the National End of Life Doula Alliance, says the practice has been steadily growing since the pandemic. How people died. That was what became important, having that safe space, that whole space, people dying in a manner that felt safe to them and was important to them. Insurance doesn't cover doulas, so they often work on a sliding scale based on what the client can pay. Although training isn't required, it's helpful, and Harmon says the Alliance does offer classes. They're trained in just how to recognize the client, being able to say there's some other phone calls that we can make, help people making funeral arrangements, you know, all of these things they really, really support. Kelly says it's a difficult time. The youngest of her four kids, a kindergartner, doesn't know yet that her mom is sick. Angela will help the family prepare. There's a chart on Kelly's bedroom wall that lists her top three priorities for the time she has left. Family, friends, and raising awareness about glioblastoma. Angela plays a singing bowl in the room. As the sound rises, she steps forward and rubs some perfume over Kelly's heart. As Kelly's condition worsens, Angela will come more often. Kelly hopes the way she's dying will be a final gift to her children. This alternative way of approaching it as a very spiritual and sacred crowning of your life, I think it could be very healing for you and those you love. After Kelly dies, Angela will begin helping the family and supporting them as they deal with the grief of losing a wife and a mother. For NPR News, I'm Sarah Whitmire in Bloomington, Indiana. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shinoy in Boston. There's another hour of Morning Edition coming up, and later today at 11 is Radio Boston. And Tiziana Deering is here to give us a preview of the show. Good morning, Tiziana. I hope you had a great long weekend. I did, Rupa. Thank you. And that singing bowl, that's very... Yeah, uh, it was centering. Yeah. It's very calming. That's the word I was looking for. Centering, calming, those are good words for it. So, um... Safety issues on the MBTA are never centering or calming, (laughs) unfortunately, but it is what we're going to talk about today in our latest from the newsroom, our own Beth Healy, who's from the investigations team, Mm -hmm. came out with a story last week showing that the DPU is just not, which I think policy-wise people knew, but is not providing uh, as effective oversight of the safety of the T. Um, One of the things Beth found was that 80% of the safety incident reports were late. Yeah. So... What does that mean? I mean, Governor Maura Healey is searching for a new general manager right now. Uh, Lots of dissatisfaction specifically on safety and daily operations for the MBTA. Beth will come in and tell us about her reporting. And then Jim Aloisi, who Mm -hmm. used to be Secretary of Transportation, will come in. And we're going to dive into implications of this latest data, what new models of safety oversight might look like, that kind of thing. What a quagmire. Good luck. Good word for it again. (laughs) You are word rupa today. Thank you, Tiziana. That's Radio Boston. Today at 11, it's 7.51. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service, proud to support WBUR and public radio to help keep quality programming alive. DirectTire.com. A lot of us talk to our cars when we're driving. In my case, it's mostly me saying, come on, come on, come on, please start. If your car's like that, then maybe it's time for a new conversation. Hamlin Washington from Snap Judgment. Let's talk about donating your car, your old or unwanted car, whatever it is. It can be turned into morning edition, wait, wait, or Snap Judgment. Trust me, your car will understand. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faltel. In recent weeks, we've brought you the perspectives of authors whose books have been challenged or banned in some parts of the country. Today, we replay our interview with George M. Johnson, who I spoke to back in October. When Johnson was growing up, they didn't see themselves in books. So Johnson wrote the book they wished they'd had, the 2020 memoir, All Boys Aren't Blue. It's about the love that I had from a black family as a young black queer boy from Plainfield, New Jersey, uh, who at the age of five uh, didn't really understand why I was different, but knew that I was different, even if I didn't have the words to say it. Johnson says it's for teens that might feel alone as they navigate their identities and the world. But today, it's become one of the most banned books in the U.S. in a growing push to pull certain books off shelves in schools. Much of the focus of the groups calling for these bans are on books dealing with race, racism, gender identity, and sexual orientation. So Johnson is in the center of a fight against censorship, a battle over what kids and teens can and cannot read. When you look at the curriculum, the curriculum that is being taught in most school systems is still heavily geared towards the straight white male teen. Uh, And so when we now have the ability to put books into curriculum that tell other stories, that tell stories of that are non-white, that tell stories that are non-heterosexual, they're trying to take them out across the board because, you know, it's like, oh, my God, how... How, how dangerous would it be if, you know, young white teens had to actually learn about the other people who exist in society with them? Is your book available where you went to school? <laughs> yes. Okay. But it is being challenged in New Jersey. So um, it has been interesting because some of my classmates from high school are now high school teachers. And, um, you know, they read the book and were like, one, we had no idea you were going through all of this, George. And they're like, we feel so bad because you were always just so cheerful and so funny. Uh And realistically, like, they were like, you were going through a lot. The the second thing is they were like, it's beautiful because some of us now have queer students um, and we know you and we knew you and we get to, like, not just share the book, but actually, you know, tell them, like, but I know, I actually know this person um, and went to school with this person. And some of them now even have, you know, queer children and they're they're using the book and, and telling them, like, I had a friend in high school who's going through what you're going through. Right. And so it became very relatable. So it's been interesting in New Jersey. We have won every challenge in New Jersey uh, because New Jersey is one of the only states that allows uh, LGBTQ curriculum in mm-hmm. uh, high schools. So, you know, but yes, it has been challenged in New Jersey in a few places, but we won um, in, in those cases. You know, there's a saying that you have repeated often about why you wrote that book. If you could repeat that again for me. 
And then I have a question. Uh, yes, I'm going to assume it's the it's Toni, Toni Morrison, Morrison. quote. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only quote I have on my body. Um, you have a tattooed, right? If there's a book that right? you want to read. Yes, I do have it tattooed because I have to look at it every day sometimes when I need a little inspiration. Um, the quote is, if there's a book you want to read and it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. So when I read that, that that quote was your inspiration, I just wondered what it felt like to have written the book that you needed as a kid and then see it become banned in how many school districts now? I believe there are up to 29 school districts, but more keep popping up. Um, watching it be banned, it's just kind of bittersweet at the end of the day because it's like none of this had to happen, in my opinion. It's like if you don't want your student to read it, that's fine. Just opt your child out. But to try and dictate that other students who you know need this text, students who have publicly on record said that works like mine have saved their lives, works like mine have helped them name their abusers, works like mine have um, helped them come to terms with who they are and feel validated in the fact that there is somebody else that exists in the world like them and you want to remove that from them. I just think it's uh, it's sad at the end of the day, right? And, yeah. um, you know, for me, I know they're not attacking my story because you didn't read it. So it's like you can't attack something you actually don't know. Um, and this is really just an attack on an ideology that just says that LGBTQ people shouldn't exist. When you wrote this book, did you see yourself becoming a spokesperson for this kind of cause? When I wrote the book, I always, like, I knew it was going to be challenged. Yeah. And, you know, I knew at some point it was going to be banned. Why did you know that? I knew it because I remember watching the Hate You Give get banned. And I was like, huh, well, I've read the Hate You Give and I know what I'm writing. And I'm like, if that's getting banned, my book doesn't stand a chance. So, <laughs> um, you know, and then, you know, by the time uh, the CRT wave started happening and it was like, okay, well, I definitely talk about, you know, uh, the problem with the former presidents of this country and slavery and, you know, writing some of the wrongs that how history has been taught. So I always knew it was going to be one of those books that got caught in it. I never thought it would become like such a heightened uh, center of political conversation. Uh, but at the same time, I've always been prepared for these type of things. I've been fighting for LGBTQ rights for as long as I can remember, uh, because in turn, I'm fighting for myself and fighting for people like me. You know, in all of this negative um, reaction that we've been discussing, um, book banning and uh, groups politicizing the situation, have you had also those support and positive reaction to your work from teachers, from librarians, from parents? Oh, yeah, most definitely. Um, I would say the support far outweighs the non-support. Um, it is being talked about at school board meetings, like that you... Because they're the loudest, a lot of times the other side is what's heard the most. But be very clear, I've sat in on school board meetings and watched enough of them. There is a lot of support for the book. And teens have not only supported like at school board meetings, but they've written letters. So the book in of itself, like I said, it's, it's so much bigger than just my story. Um, and I'm watching it in real time uh, help so many people uh, from parents to to children to teachers to librarians uh, across the board. George M. Johnson, author of All Boys Aren't Blue. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you.
Our series on banned books is edited by Rena Advani. To read personal essays from the authors we featured, go to npr.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm A. Martinez. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. China has shown a decline in population for the first time in decades. That may have major economic implications for the most populous country in the world. It's Tuesday, January 17th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, at least 40 people were killed when Russian missiles struck a Ukrainian apartment building over the weekend. Responders are still working to recover bodies from the rubble. Only the dead are left. He says the last person he rescued alive was on Sunday. Also this hour, some of California's levees are over a century old, and experts say they may not withstand many more megastorms driven by climate change. Levees that were originally built to protect agriculture now have to protect suburban areas and soon. In sports, the Celtics and Bruins both win. Cloudy and warmer today in the mid-40s. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Korva Coleman. Officials in the Ukrainian city of Dnipro expect rescue efforts to end today at the site of a Russian missile attack on an apartment complex. NPR's Alyssa Nadwarney reports more than 40 people were killed. There is a giant crater in the center of the nine-story apartment complex. The middle section, which used to be dozens of people's homes, is now just missing. Emergency services do not expect to find any more people alive. This was part of a massive Russian missile attack on Saturday. Most targets were the power grid, infrastructure. That's been the pattern the past few months. UK military intelligence has said the type of Russian missile that hit the Dnipro apartment is, quote, notoriously inaccurate. Russia said the strikes Saturday were only on military targets. They blamed the tragedy on Ukrainian air defense missile that went awry, which Ukraine denies. Alyssa Nadwarny, NPR News, Dnipro. Republican lawmakers say President Biden has not been prompt in disclosing the discovery of classified documents at his home. Over the weekend, Biden's lawyer said new documents were found last Thursday. Documents discovered in November and December weren't disclosed until this month. More of the nation's big banks report quarterly earnings today. That includes Goldman Sachs. It just laid off more than 3,000 workers. As NPR's David Gura tells us, banks have been having a tricky time in a challenging economic environment. This has been a particularly tough time for investment banking, which is Goldman Sachs's bread and butter. Because of high inflation and rising interest rates, there's been a steep downturn in mergers and acquisitions, and companies are holding off on going public, selling their shares on the stock market. Like Bank of America and J.P. Morgan Chase, Goldman does not have a big retail presence to offset that. 
Its efforts to expand into consumer banking have failed to gain traction, and they've led to losses. Last week, Goldman laid off more than 5 percent of its staff. NPR's David Gura reporting. Authorities in central California say six people were shot and killed yesterday. One victim was a 17-year-old mother, and another was a six-month-old baby. From member station KQED, Alex Hall reports officials suspect the shootings were gang-related. Deputies responding to multiple shots discovered two victims dead in the street and a third victim in the doorway of a house. Three more people were found at the house, including a man who was rushed to the hospital but died from his injuries. Tulare County Sheriff Mike Boudreaux said detectives served a narcotics search warrant at the home last week. We believe that this was a targeted family. We believe that there are gang associations involved in this scene, as well as potential narcotics investigations. The sheriff's office says it believes there are at least two suspects involved in the shooting. For NPR News, I'm Alex Hall. This is NPR. In Somalia, government forces and local militia have captured an al-Shabaab stronghold on the Indian Ocean coast. Ish Mafundikwa reports on the statement from Somalia's defense minister. Abdul Mohammed Nur said the al-Shabaab militants fled the port town of Aradere without a fight. He added the government-led troops also took the nearby Galsad town. Haradere was a hub for Somali hijackers of merchant ships until 2011. The terrorists have responded to the military setbacks with attacks that have killed scores of people across the country. Al-Shabaab has waged a bloody terror campaign against Somalia's government and civilians since 2006. It wants to establish a Sharia law-based Islamic State. For NPR News, I am Ishma Fundikwa in Harare. The National Weather Service says California is finally getting a break from severe storms that have pounded the state since late December. At least 20 people have been killed. There's been substantial damage in some California areas, including wrecked roads and flooded buildings. Jury selection starts today in San Francisco for the federal trial of Tesla owner Elon Musk. A group of Tesla shareholders claims that Musk tweeted in 2018 that he had gotten the funding for a potential buyout of the electric car maker. That Tesla buyout never happened. The plaintiffs allege Musk's tweet lost them billions of dollars. The Securities and Exchange Commission says Musk knew that a deal for Tesla was not in the works. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Teachers in Melrose are backing a tentative contract that would avert a strike. Ninety-seven percent of teachers present at a union meeting yesterday voted to ratify the new deal. It includes pay hikes and more time allotted for lesson planning. The Melrose School Committee must still vote to make the contract official. Police are expanding their search today for a missing woman in Brookfield. Police investigators say 35-year-old Brittany T. was last seen leaving her home near Lewis Field one week ago. She was reported missing on Friday. Investigators say they're worried she could be out in the cold. Demand for housing is up in Massachusetts, but not many people are willing to sell. The Massachusetts Association of Realtors says more than 3,600 single-family homes were sold in the state last month. That's 30 percent fewer than the same month a year ago. Association President David McCarthy says the slowdown was caused by the number of people who sold their homes earlier in the pandemic. Through COVID, we had an abundant number of sales over the course of uh, a two and a half to 
six-year period, it almost feels like we've stolen sellers from the future. People are very happy in their homes, and because interest rates are up, they're not looking to move. The median selling price in the state was $535,000. That's up almost 2% in one year. McCarthy says Massachusetts needs to, build, needs to build more houses to catch up with the demand. Firefighters in Newton are learning how to use a new safety tool designed for crashes involving electric cars. WBUR's Dan Guzman reports that Newton is only the second city in the country to have the new tech. The emergency plug can be inserted into any EV to essentially put it in park. It's a normal uh, combustion car. You can kind of uh, anticipate the hazards with an electric vehicle because they run so quiet, you almost can't anticipate the sudden vehicle movement. That's Captain Phil McCulley with the Newton Fire Department. He was inspired to get the device after hearing about a scary accident in New York. A firefighter responding to an electric vehicle crash was hurt when that vehicle suddenly took off. What this will do is it will hopefully transform the way first responders will be uh, responding and being a little bit safer with electric vehicle accidents. The entire Newton department will be trained on how to use the plug by the end of this month. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dan Guzman. It's 8.08. WBUR supporters include the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. The Celtics are celebrating another win in Charlotte. They beat the Hornets 130-118. to They'll return home on Thursday to take on the Golden State Warriors. The Bruins shut out the Flyers at the Garden yesterday. The final score was 6-0. to Tomorrow, the Bruins hit the road to take on the Islanders in New York at 7.30. Cloudy today and a lot warmer than yesterday with highs reaching the mid-40s. Tonight, a slight chance of rain before 8 p.m. Temperatures will drop about 10 degrees then to the mid-30s. Tomorrow, partly sunny and warmer with a high near 50 degrees. It's 33 degrees in Boston right now at 8.08. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faudel in Washington, D.C. Emergency crews are still clearing the rubble and searching for bodies in the aftermath of a Russian missile attack on an apartment building in the Ukrainian city of Dnipro. It's one of the deadliest attacks on civilians away from the front line since Russia's war started. More than 40 people were killed, including children. NPR's Alyssa Nadworny is covering this story from Dnipro, and she joins us now. Good morning, Alyssa. Good morning. So you visited what's left of this nine-story apartment building. What did you see? Well, there's a crater right in the center of a huge apartment complex. The middle section, which used to be about a dozen of people's homes, is now just missing. Mm. On one of the top floors, you can see right into a kitchen just hanging off. This was part of a massive Russian missile attack on Saturday. Most targets were the power grid or infrastructure. That's been the pattern these past few months. But that's not what happened here. UK military intelligence said the Russian missile used here was, quote, notoriously inaccurate. Russia says the strikes Saturday were only on military targets. They blame the tragedy on a Ukrainian air defense missile that went awry, which Ukraine denies. So many people's lives destroyed, lives lost. And this attack was in an area that's been largely spared from the attacks we've seen elsewhere recently, right? Yeah, that's right. Dnipro is considered a safe haven. It's a bustling city where a lot of displaced Ukrainians from further east live. Petro Shevchenko is 85 and lives alone on the seventh floor. He got trapped for about two hours under the rubble. 
His face is all cut up, but he says he's just grateful to be alive. Wow. Emergency workers carried him out of the building because he could hardly walk. Larissa Sevchenko survived the attack by sheltering in a quarter on the eighth floor with her two children, ages six and ten, and one of her son's friends. She remembers seeing a fireball out the window, but once they got outside, they found a friend of her son. He'd been playing on the playground when the missile hit. His parents were inside, he told her. Shevchenko remembers through tears that the little boy asked her, will I be without a mother now? She says she later found out that both of the boy's parents had died in the attack. Oh my God, that's absolutely devastating. So the attack was Saturday. Are the Ukrainians still hoping to find survivors three days later now? Well, yesterday at the site, there were still dozens of rescue workers cleaning the debris, but officials now say they're no longer expecting to find any more people alive. Only the dead are left, says Serhii Shova. He's the team leader of the emergency crew working here. He says there are bodies still trapped. Rescue workers can see them, but they haven't been able to reach them or it's been too dangerous to get them. He told us the last person he rescued alive was on Sunday, a woman on the fourth floor. He said her one-year-old baby and her husband did not survive. Hmm. Only the dead are left. And this is miles from the front lines. What's happening on the battlefield? Well, heavy fighting is still happening in the eastern part of the country, and it's not going to end anytime soon. I mean... While they wait for new weapons here in Ukraine, they're watching joint drills between Russia and Belarus warily. That started on Monday. They're worried about the possibility of an attack from there. NPR's Alyssa Nadwerny in Dnipro, Ukraine. Thank you for your reporting, Alyssa. Thank you. German Defense Minister Christine Lambrecht resigned yesterday. She's the highest-ranking member of Chancellor Olaf Scholz's cabinet to do so, and her departure is shining a spotlight on what many see as Germany's lackluster support of Ukraine and its fight against Russia. Germany announced today that she'll be replaced by politician Boris Pistorius. NPR's Rob Schmitz joins us now from Berlin. Uh, Rob Lambrecht uh, served just over a year as the country's top defense uh, minister. Why'd you resign? Well, uh, like several former German defense ministers, Christine Lambrecht did not have any military experience. And that lack of experience showed after German Chancellor Olaf Scholz announced a $100 billion boost in spending to Germany's armed forces, which suddenly cast a spotlight on Germany's military. Well, you just said that several past defense ministers in Germany didn't have military experience. Yeah, that's, that's right. So what about her replacement? Does he have any military experience? Barely. He he did what at the time was mandatory military service for all Germans for just one year. And that's pretty typical, eh? Unlike the U.S., where the Secretary of Defense typically has deep military credentials, here in Germany, the Ministry of Defense has, since reunification, been underfunded. And the role of defense minister is not seen as a really prestigious cabinet position. In fact, this position is typically filled with someone who the chancellor either sees as a potential adversary and wants to make them go away or someone who has experience heading another ministry and can manage things relatively well. Konstantin Wismann, who is a military expert here in Berlin, calls the position a career shredder. (laughs) The chance of staying in office for a long time there is about as great as that of a drummer in a rock band in the 70s. So one former defense uh, secretary, he has called the whole thing an ejection seat, a snake pit, and a sack full of mines. It's a pretty colorful description. And unlike some 
rock drummers in the 1970s. It's not drugs or booze that kills the career of a German defense minister, but it's typically the backbiting nature of the ministry itself. One internal government report characterized it as organized irresponsibility prevails there. And much of this boils down to the ministry's lack of funding. But isn't this lack of funding maybe now changing that there's a war not too far away from Germany's borders? Yeah, and that was part of Christine Lambrecht's problem. Three days after Russia invaded Ukraine, Chancellor Schultz promised a $100 billion boost of funding. He called it a Zeitenwende, German for historical turning point. And that suddenly meant that Lambrecht was overseeing this historical transformation of the military and that all eyes were suddenly on her. And that scrutiny exposed her inexperience. She made several embarrassing gaffes. Early on in the war, when Germany's NATO allies were calling on it to send heavy weaponry into Ukraine, she announced Germany would instead send 5,000 helmets, assuring it would fulfill Ukraine's war objectives. Uh, The last straw came on New Year's Eve when she posted an end-of-the-year video message on Instagram. She reflected on the war in Ukraine and all the, quote, interesting people she's met since the war started. Here's some of that. Yeah, Rob, I can barely hear her over those fireworks. Yep, it was an amateur video in every respect. Uh, She was off mic. She was trying to send a heartfelt message to those suffering in a war while she was standing in front of New Year's Eve revelers in Berlin who were setting off fireworks in celebration. Uh, The whole message was just completely tone deaf, and she was skewered in the German press for this. Even her own ministry distanced itself from her, and then calls for her resignation just reached a point of no return. That's NPR's Rob Schmitz joining us from Berlin. Rob, thanks. Thank you. Jury selection begins today in a San Francisco federal court where Tesla and its CEO, Elon Musk, are on trial. Yeah, it seems a series of posts on Twitter in 2018 has gotten Musk in hot water with shareholders of the electric car company. They claim his statements cost him a lot of money. Laura Kolodny is a tech reporter with CNBC who's been following this story, and she joins me now from San Francisco. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, Laura, break down why Tesla and Elon Musk are on trial for us. So I'm sure you remember in 2018, Elon Musk caused a lot of excitement when he tweeted that he was considering taking Tesla private at $420 per share, and he had funding secured to do so. Some people kind of took that as like a cannabis joke, and other people took it more seriously. And after that, Tesla shares spiked on the news of a possible deal. Trading was halted, and then trading was very volatile for several weeks after that. And investors who bought Tesla stock at pretty elevated prices at that time later sued saying that they lost money after the shares declined and it became clear that Musk had not exactly secured funding. So could Musk face serious consequences for his tweets? So the judge and jury are going to have to decide whether Musk's tweets had a material effect on the stock price and whether investors were relying on his tweets and statements to make Mm. their trading decisions. And then if there were any damages, they'll have to sort of figure out who should be liable to pay and and what level of damages. That's one thing. I'm sure it won't, if Musk and Tesla lose, it probably won't, you know, break his bank. But the SEC would feel very vindicated. Uh, You probably recall Musk and Tesla already each paid a $20 million fine to the SEC over the tweets. Mm -hmm. The financial regulators had charged Musk with civil securities fraud and struck this settlement agreement, and Musk has been unhappy about it ever since. If he prevails, on the other hand, 
you know, he'll succeed in clearing his name and making the SEC look badly for their prior charges and then for all the ongoing investigations to see if Elon Musk and Tesla have been in compliance with the terms of that settlement agreement. So no matter the outcome, this verdict could be appealed, and it's also possible that this case could settle out. But I I see Musk as a risk taker, and I think he will keep fighting to try to clear his name and, frankly, to get revenge on the regulators. How are Tesla investors reacting to the trial? I think, honestly, Tesla shareholders have much bigger fish to fry. They're, they're not sure how much the damages could amount to if Musk or Tesla have to pay. But what they are really worried about right now is distraction for Musk. Musk is already stretched very thin. You know, he's newly become the CEO and owner of Twitter. Yeah. He continues to spend a lot of hours working at Twitter. And he's appointed himself, you know, chief twit and made a whole bunch of controversial decisions there. Um, some of these are alienating, you know, a core core market for Tesla, the liberal leaning people who were part of Tesla's core market in the US and Europe historically. Additionally, you know, Tesla has slashed its prices on cars worldwide and shareholders are really worried about that. It could, you know, hit profitability and there's now a question of a demand cliff. Are Tesla cars still in demand? Laura Kolodny covers the tech industry for CNBC. Thanks so much. Thank you. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, NPR is launching a comic book with advice from and for kids on how to cope with anxiety about climate change. It's 820. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. Childhood obesity rates tripled in the past generation. That's prompted new guidance from the American Academy of Pediatrics. This is the first time we're actually using really big data sets and big clinical trials to be able to advise pediatricians on how to manage pediatric obesity. But the suggestions include medicines, even surgery at ever younger ages. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. We warm up to the mid-40s today under increasingly cloudy skies. There's a slight chance of showers this evening and temperatures fall to the mid-30s. Tomorrow, partly sunny and a little bit warmer in the upper 40s. Right now, it's 34 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the law firm Cooley LLP, with offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world where innovation meets the law. And from PBS, with Zora Neale Hurston claiming a space from American Experience, a new biography of the influential author and anthropologist, tonight at 9, 8 central on PBS.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. Good morning. Today, we're launching a comic book for kids, and it's all about climate change. It can be a lot to take in, and many kids are feeling the weight of inheriting a hotter planet. So we created a guide to help them. It focuses on a student grappling with that issue, 17-year-old Gabriel Nagel of Denver, Colorado. He first remembers learning about climate change in class as a seventh grader. I don't think it really clicked. Like I saw the numbers increasing on a graph, but I didn't really see how much of a crisis it really was. It wasn't actually until um, Boulder's Sunshine Valley Canyon fire. The fire continues to burn. West of Boulder, the Sunshine Canyon area, it's called the Sunshine Fire. I went to my dad upstairs and told him that, like, I think something's wrong. Like, and then we looked outside, and it was this, this giant blaze um, coming over the ridge right towards us. More than a 1,000 homes were evacuated before the sun came up this morning. I mean, we just ended up evacuating with everyone else and just getting out of there for the day. Luckily, when we returned, everything was fine. And that was a moment when it kind of clicked for me that climate change isn't something of the future. It's something that... We're dealing with right now, and no matter who you are, you're going to be impacted. After that fire, I kind of had an internal feeling that I needed to do something. So I started taking personal actions like bike and public transport and eat less meat. But then I started getting involved with our sustainability club at East High School. That's where I met Mariah. So my name is Mariah Rosenzweig. I am 18 years old. I had grown up just always being outside. I was always one of the few girls that would like be dirtier than all the boys. I think climate advocacy is more than just policy, but for me, it's really getting people to understand how integrated we are with the natural world and we're not separate from it. We tend to talk about this climate change stuff a lot and we'll spend time going to hikes and kind of just enjoying what we have around us while it's there. I went to a sustainability club meeting and One of the presidents was like, hey, we have this other group called DPS Students for Climate Action. And I was immediately like, oh, this is something I want to be a part of. So we started off and we realized DPS, which is essentially the largest school district in Colorado, they lacked any sort of climate action policy. And then we came up with this whole resolution where we outlined goals. One of the goals is 90 percent reduction in greenhouse gases from 2010 levels. You know, we would meet every single week, and a lot of that was presenting at public comments. And our first topic this evening is sustainability resolution presented by the... So a lot of times it would, we'd put so much heart and so much passion into it. Our first primary goal is for the district to strive to 100% clean energy by... And then the board is like, thank you. Next. Thank you so much. You can... And it was like, oh... How much longer are we going to keep doing this? Once again, we have with us some special guests, the sustainability student group. From start to finish, the process took almost two years. Director Anderson? Aye. Director Balderman? Aye. Director Esterman? Aye. The policy was passed unanimously, and it was really amazing. I know on a personal level, it sometimes feels like what I'm doing will never be enough. And part of that is true. Like one person isn't going to be able to change the fate of this planet of climate change. I realized that now the conversation isn't what can we do to prevent climate change? It's how are we going to live with it? As I'm still so young to hear that shift is frustrating because it's like we've known about this for so long. Climate change can be 
incredibly overwhelming at times, and that's totally okay. It's okay to feel anxious about your future because it is a real threat, but also don't let that stop you from trying to make a change and instead kind of use that as motivation to make the change that we need. That was Gabriel Nagel and Mariah Rosenzweig, both students at East High School in Denver, Colorado. And joining me now for more on how kids are processing climate change is Lauren Summer from NPR's Climate Desk. So we just heard from these two students feeling like not enough is being done. How common are these feelings? Yeah, in general, you know, if you look at young adults, they're more likely to care about climate change. And that's true no matter what political party they belong to. And when it comes to younger school age kids, you know, some are experiencing this climate anxiety that we heard. It's something that Dr. Kelsey Hudson, who is a clinical psychologist who specializes in climate change, she's seeing that in her patients. Many young people are experiencing grief and frustration and anxiety and elements of kind of betrayal by adults and other generations. And for some kids, this is kind of layering on top of the isolation and stress they may have experienced during the pandemic. Wow, I think it is kind of hard to hear that they feel betrayed by us, by our generation and other generations. So if you're a parent, or caregiver, or even a kid feeling these emotions, what's a good way to address it? Yeah, so Hudson says the first thing is to make some space to talk about it. If you're a caregiver, ask what a kid knows about climate change and and how it makes them feel. Listen, you know, acknowledge their feelings and validate that it's a big, difficult thing to think about and avoid the urge to say that everything is going to be okay. Yeah, but I can see how a caregiver might want to just tell their kid, don't worry, everything is going to be okay. What's wrong with that? It's kind of a Band-Aid. It's not a solution. And it's a global change that will affect billions of people. And young people know that. Yeah. So the next step after kind of just talking about it and validating feelings is to find something meaningful, Hudson says. We can think about what does it look like for young people or one young person to find a sense of meaning and purpose in this crisis, to maybe connect with like-minded others and build some agency through connecting with climate engagement or action. So engagement can happen on very different levels, she says. You know, it can be just, you know, planting a pollinator-friendly flower in your backyard with a kid or maybe volunteering at a local park. What's important here is finding community, finding those social connections so that young people don't feel so isolated with these feelings. Lauren Summer of NPR's Climate Desk. Thanks so much, Lauren. Thanks. And you can head to NPR's website to download a comic book of Gabe's story just for kids. It explains what climate change is and how kids can process their feelings. That's at NPR.org. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, we hear from the Washington Post reporter who helped uncover links between New York Representative George Santos and a businessman with ties to a sanctioned Russian oligarch. It's 829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte is meeting with President Biden today at the White House. 
NPR's Emily Fang says Biden and Ruta are expected to discuss aid to Ukraine and the semiconductor industry, specifically cutting off competitors such as China. You just cannot make some of the most advanced types of semiconductors without the Dutch. Specifically, you need one Dutch company called ASML. This company has developed pretty mind-bending technology to project and print patterns at the nanometer level onto silicon wafers. And China wants to buy that technology because they want to make their own cutting-edge semiconductor chips. And for that, you need Dutch machines. The flight data recorder from the crash of a Yeti Airlines flight in Nepal is being sent to France for analysis. Sunday's crash of the twin-engine plane killed at least 70 people. The U.N.'s top envoy for Yemen says he's hopeful that diplomatic efforts underway could help end the eight-year war. As Linda Fasulo reports, he offered that assessment yesterday in a meeting of the U.N. Security Council. The U.N. envoy told Security Council members that while diplomacy might help move resolution of the Yemeni war forward, both the Iranian-backed Houthi rebels and the Yemeni government need to agree on a shared vision with concrete, actionable steps in order to bring peace to the country. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A reduction in federal food benefits for Massachusetts residents could have an effect on farmers in the state. Beginning in March, people using the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program will have about $95 less a month to spend on food. Zoe Sloat is with the group Community Involved in Sustaining Agriculture. I do think that farmers are going to be concerned, and I do think that they'll see You know, it will impact their sales. It'll mean that people aren't going there. They're going to be stretching their budgets at other places. She expects farmers to plant fewer crops in the spring as a result. The reduction in benefits were part of a massive spending package signed by President Biden at the end of last year. For-profit Bay State College is preparing to be stripped of its accreditation. The college has campuses in Boston and Taunton. Yesterday, the Boston Business Journal obtained a letter sent to students by school leaders. In it, they warned that students will lose federal financial aid. The college is in the process of slashing costs to make up for lagging enrollment. A few years ago, it paid out over a million dollars to resolve allegations it used illegal marketing tactics. Westfield police are looking for people who they say stole and burned gay pride flags from a house in the city. Police say this is the fifth time in a year that the house has been targeted with theft or vandalism. Police are asking anyone with information to contact them. A Worcester woman's work to expose the danger of so-called forever chemicals in firefighters' gear will be recognized in a new documentary produced by Mark Ruffalo. Diane Cotter's husband was a longtime Worcester firefighter. He was diagnosed with cancer after he was allegedly exposed to chemicals known as PFAS in his protective equipment. The diagnosis inspired Diane to lobby for safer gear. The Telegram and Gazette reports that work is chronicled in the new film Burned. It premieres later this month in Las Vegas. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack College. Committed to providing teachers with MED degrees, credentials, and personalized career-long mentoring. Online.merrimack.edu. The Celtics defeated the Hornets in Charlotte by 12 points. Jason Tatum became the C's all-time leading scorer with five 50-point games in the regular season. That means he surpassed a record previously held by Larry Bird.
The Bruins are also celebrating a win. They shut out the Philadelphia Flyers yesterday at the Garden. The final score was 6-0. to zero. A high near 44 today under increasingly cloudy skies. Low 30s tonight. Tomorrow a high near 49 and partly sunny. A high of 41 on Thursday. Mostly cloudy skies. It's 34 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business, with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. We've learned more about the finances of embattled freshman congressman George Santos, who lied about much of his life story during his election campaign last year. Reporters at The Washington Post have uncovered close ties between the New York lawmaker and a businessman who is the cousin of a sanctioned Russian oligarch. For more, we're joined now by Isaac Stanley Becker, political investigations reporter with The Washington Washington Post. Thanks for being here. Good morning. Good morning. So who is this businessman, Andrew Introtter, and how is he connected to George Santos and why does it matter? So as you say, Andrew Introtter is an American businessman and the cousin of a Russian oligarch named Victor Vexelberg, who has been sanctioned by the U.S. government. Mr. Introtter is key to this story because he's one of Santos's main benefactors and in ways that our reporting shows goes beyond mere campaign contributions. What we were able to reveal is that Mr. Santos claimed privately in 2020 that Mr. Introtter's company was his client. And separately, a different Introtter company made a deposit of hundreds of thousands of dollars into a investment firm based in Florida where Mr. Santos once worked. Now, Introtter's company also has links to former President Trump, right? What are those? That's right. So both Mr. Introtter and his Russian cousin were caught up in the probe by special counsel counsel Robert Mueller because of the ties that they tried to forge with Michael Cohen, who at the time was Mr. Trump's lawyer and self-described fixer. Mr. Introtter donated hundreds of thousands of dollars to Trump's inaugural committee, attended the inauguration along with his cousin, and his company, Columbus Nova, began paying Mr. Cohen as part of a contract to locate new deals and investors for his company. So bottom line, what does this all mean? Why does it matter if Santos is connected to this businessman in this company? Well, we've learned a lot over the last several weeks about the various lies that Mr. Santos has told about himself in the past. One of the enduring mysteries is his financial background, how he went from receiving a salary of about $55,000 in 2020 to multiple millions of dollars two years later in 2022 enough to loan his campaign more than $700,000. So my colleagues and I at the Washington Post are hard at work understanding his background, his benefactors, and some of the business ties that he forged on his way to public office. Does it appear that Santos did something illegal here? 
You know, I think I would leave that question to prosecutors. We know that he's under scrutiny both in New York and in Rio de Janeiro. I will also say that we've sent a long list of questions to the congressman. He has not responded, but he has my email as well as my cell phone number, so he can call at any time to discuss this and clarify. Have any of the companies involved responded? No. Um, Mr. Introtter as well did not respond. You know, I think if uh, someone said that I was their client and I wasn't their client, I would quickly clarify that. We asked Mr. Introtter if it was true, this business relationship, and to weigh in, he has also not responded. Isaac Stanley Becker, political investigations reporter with The Washington Post. Thank you so much for your time. Good to be with you. California residents are assessing the damage after a series of storms battered the state in recent weeks. The weather caused power outages, flooding, and landslides and killed at least 20 people. And the rainfall also tested California's water infrastructure. In central California, multiple homes flooded over the weekend when levees were breached. We called Jay Lund, a professor of civil and environmental engineering at the University of California, Davis, to ask if the state's thousands of miles of aging levees can hold up against the pressures of climate change. These levees were built at very different times over the last more than 100 years, in some cases about 150 years. Some of the early levees, which are still around, were made basically by farmers and landowners piling up dirt between them and the river. On some occasions, those have been formalized, uh, and certainly for the major levees that are protecting large cities, we now have you know pretty well-engineered, pretty well-maintained levees. Um, that all provide finite amounts of protection. And generally, Jay, when these levees were built, how long were they expected to last? I don't think people were thinking about that so much when they were first built. Um, you know, they were built to try to keep your property safe for the next few years because California was growing very fast at the time. The horizons, I think, were fairly short. How much is climate change affecting the situation with levees in California? Well, I think it's going to be increasingly important. Uh, the warmer storms can bring more moisture than they would have in the past. The floods will be coming bigger, and we're going to have to adapt to that either by increasing the channel capacities to let them pass, raising the levees to protect human structures and human people, um, and changing the way that we operate reservoirs. So it sounds like that maybe a complete overhaul isn't necessarily required, but maybe a lot of maintenance. That's true. We have several hundred local levee districts throughout California, certainly hundreds, if not thousands, of, of people that work on those levees all the time. I would say that we certainly have flood problems and levee problems, as you would expect with a system that has thousands of miles of levee, but I wouldn't say we're nearly starting from scratch. What's the biggest then threat, or at least maybe the biggest thing people are thinking about when it comes to, say, if we were to have this conversation 50 years from now when it comes to California's levees, what kind of shape would we be in then? I think we need to prepare for a future that has worse floods. Climate changes that we're seeing are pretty real. The levees function pretty well for the conditions of the past, not only in terms of climate, but also in terms of human settlement. We've been moving quite a few people into some of the flood-prone areas. Um, and so levees that were originally built to protect agriculture now have to protect suburban areas. Is California thinking enough about this? I think we should think more about it. The hard part is to think about it consistently, even during dry periods. For years at a time, the time that it takes to plan and build flood infrastructure, and the time it takes to finance and pay for flood infrastructure, people often aren't willing to pay for flood infrastructure when it's sunny out. 
And is that something that the state of California would need to take the lead on? The state of California's had several large multi-billion dollar water bonds over the last 15, 20 years and have worked pretty well for the, the major urban areas. But we still have a lot of communities on, in rural areas that are underprotected, I think. And I think we could also do better on some of the, the urban areas, too. That's Jay Lund, professor of civil and environmental engineering at UC Davis. Jay, thanks. You're very welcome. This is NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, restrictions on Russian gas had some predicting rolling blackouts across Europe this month, but that hasn't happened so far. We look at why. In your forecast, clouds move in throughout the day today and temperatures will be in the low to mid 40s. Tonight, mostly overcast and in the mid 30s, partly sunny and upper 40s tomorrow, then mostly cloudy and low 40s on Thursday. It's 34 degrees in Boston at 843. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Eversource. Eversource knows the role energy plays in life for you and your family. And because of that understanding, in times like these, they offer plans that can help this winter. To see if you qualify, you can visit Eversource.com. Now in business news, Boston-based Myomo Incorporated is laying off 12% of its workforce. The medical robotics company says the cuts will save it more than $2 million a year. Gas prices in Massachusetts are now less than the national average. AAA says the average price for a gallon of regular in the Bay State is $3.31. Though it's below the national average, it's up one cent from yesterday. The average price for diesel is $5.07. That's down just over a nickel from a week ago. BT's Smokehouse in Worcester is the best barbecue spot in Massachusetts. That's according to a new ranking by the Food Network. The restaurant started out as a roadside trailer in Sturbridge. It also has a concession stand in Worcester's Polar Park. It's 844. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to inspiring and enabling the next generation of inventors to improve lives around the world. More information is available at lemelson.org. And from the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society in its hometown of Flint and communities around the world. More at mott.org and from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm A. Martinez. Some of Europe's leaders say Russian President Vladimir Putin is using energy as a weapon this winter to break their solidarity with Ukraine. But predictions of power cuts amid biting cold and high energy prices have not come to pass so far. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports that unseasonably mild weather is just part of the story. 
Baker Corinne Butard appeared on French television this month in desperation. I was crying this morning when I had to lay off some of my employees. They're like family, and they have kids and bills to pay, but I have no choice. No choice because Butard, like many energy-dependent small businesses, signed an electricity contract last fall when all the experts were predicting a severe shortage this winter. But today, she's paying 10 times the current price. This is shocking to energy specialists like Pierre-Louis Brenac at SIA Partners in Paris. He says just several months ago, there was huge fear. Things have been going way easier than we uh, thought. It was a bit of a panic movement, clearly. Uh, the, the fear started back in August, if you remember, on the markets, traders and uh, risk managers alike, and, and banks, by the way, fearing that we would lack supply. Brenac says the French government had plans to manage rolling blackouts already, including an app to notify households when their neighborhood would be cut from the grid, and special procedures to manage hospitals, pharmacies, and schools. This peppy public service announcement encouraging people to save energy shows hands flicking off lights, turning off water taps, and turning down heaters. French households and industry have helped the situation by reducing consumption. So far, no EU country has had to initiate rolling blackouts. Au contraire, there's plenty of power and the price of electricity has in fact gone way down. There's a combination of positive factors and planets are aligning, not only because the weather is milder, but also because the production means are available and the balance is good between imports, production. Germany and France have set up floating regasification plants to receive liquefied natural gas imports. Norway and the Netherlands are pumping North Sea gas and oil at full throttle. And France is again exporting nuclear power to its neighbors, even though it had to close several reactors for maintenance over the last year. Nuclear expert Olivier Appert says there's a glut of energy today. What is surprising is due to this mild weather, some of the reactors has been stopped due to the fact that the demand is not high enough to justify the functioning of these reactors. Appert says Russia's war in Ukraine on top of climate change has created a huge consensus across Europe in favor of nuclear energy for the future. Eh bien, ce qu'on va demander dès maintenant aux fournisseurs d'énergie. Meanwhile, President Emmanuel Macron has stepped in to help the bakers, demanding that energy providers let small businesses renegotiate existing contracts to reflect today's prices. That's a welcome move, says Brenac. He says Europe is showing amazing solidarity in the face of Putin's attempts to divide it by weaponizing energy. Yet another time, European countries have found in a tense situation the will and the determination to find compromise between themselves. It's a matter of pride, I think, for uh, European nations to show uh, the resolve and, and the unity. There are just a few more weeks of possible crippling cold, says Brenac. But if Europe can make it to Valentine's Day, it will be in the clear. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm A. Martinez. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, Walmart, the world's largest retailer, is looking to expand its sales into technology and services. And coming up at noon today, it's here and now, and Deepa Fernandez is on the line to tell us what they're going to be talking about today. Hi, Deepa. 
Good morning, Rupa. We have a lot on today's show. We're going to start in Ukraine, in Dnipro, where the death toll from Saturday's missile strike on the apartment building is now at 40, Rupa, including three children. And, you know, there is the back and forth as to whose fault it was, whether it was a notoriously inaccurate missile, and that is what the UK Ministry of Defence has weighed in. So we'll get the latest over there. We also are going today is the first day of the new legislature in New Mexico. And we are going to speak to a very unique cabinet member. She is the Secretary of Early Childhood Education. There are not many of them around the country, and we're going to ask her why. And we also hear from a Los Angeles TV reporter, an African-American woman who really has been doing this for a long time. She just retired, and we're going to hear what it's been like covering the news for all these years. Interesting. Thank you, Deepa. Thanks, Rupa. That's here and now. Today at noon, it's 8.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR News, reminding you that your public radio station is a service and the people who use that service are the largest single source of support for that service. Your old car can play a role. It can help pay for the producers, editors, and audio engineers and others who create Mornigation every day. Your old car can do that. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Warmer today in the mid-40s under increasingly cloudy skies. The skies stay cloudy tonight and temperatures fall to the low 30s. Tomorrow, partly sunny and near 50, mostly cloudy and around 40 on Thursday. It's 35 degrees in Boston at 851. Global electric vehicle sales last year got a big jolt. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Paychex, where HR, insurance, benefits, and payroll integrate into one platform. Whether two or 2,000 employees, Paychex can help make HR simple for businesses and employees. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore, in for David Brancaccio. One out of every 10 cars sold worldwide in 2022 was electric, so 10% of sales. This is the first time that has happened. More American car buyers went electric than the year before, but the Wall Street Journal added up the numbers and says the surge in EV sales was hottest in China and Europe. Marketplace's Nova Sappho has more. Last year, automakers sold nearly 8 million fully electric vehicles globally, according to the Wall Street Journal. Not bad, considering that for much of the year, car makers were still struggling with a semiconductor chip shortage, which especially hampered production of high-tech cars. 8 million sales globally and more than 800,000 in the U.S., which is a new record here. That's according to auto industry research firm Kelly Blue Book. It found that electric vehicles accounted for nearly 6% of American auto sales last year. Tesla's cars dominated that segment, but the company's market share in the U.S. is falling. In the last few months of 2022, it dipped below 60% for the first time as other car makers challenged Tesla's dominance. I'm Nova Safo for Marketplace. Walmart, the world's largest retailer, is known for the volume of stuff that it sells. The company reported more than half a trillion dollars worth of sales of everything from deodorant to tents last year. And even as Walmart is looking for new ways to sell even more things, it's shopping around an altogether new type of product for the company, 
technology, and services. Marketplace's Lily Jamali has more. Walmart is starting a new partnership with the software giant Salesforce. The deal allows retailers and others that run their websites on Salesforce platforms to use Walmart's fulfillment and delivery technology. Walmart's Anshu Bardwatch says the company has the expertise and honed it even more during the pandemic. We have fulfilled over 830 million orders across our 4,700 stores in the U.S. and outside. And 3 million deliveries with its Go Local platform, which brings those products to a customer's doorstep using independent contractors. We're bringing the same technology that we are offering to our customer base and expand the reach to other customers. This is Walmart taking a page from the playbook of its biggest competitor, Amazon, says Wedbush Managing Director Dan Ives. They're really trying to commercialize their technology and trying to monetize it. Branching out from goods deeper into services and tech in the hunt for new sources of revenue. I'm Lily Jamali for Marketplace. All right, let's do the numbers. The FTSE in London is down two tenths of a percent. Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures also down in the two to three tenths percent range with the Dow future down 108 points. Ten-year Treasury yield is at 3.560 percent. And the average price of gas in the U.S., once $5 a gallon last year, is now around $3.33. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Prisma Sassy from Palo Alto Networks. Secure access for hybrid workforces wherever work happens. The future of secure access is ZTNA 2.0. It's zero trust with zero exceptions. More at paloaltonetworks.com. The World Economic Forum is underway in Davos, Switzerland. This is the annual meetup where leaders from around the world discuss urgent global issues. There are a lot of those these days. The agenda for the event spans climate change, Russia's war on Ukraine, inflation, and emerging technologies. Zanny Minton Beddoes is editor-in-chief of The Economist magazine, and she is at Davos. She spoke with my Marketplace colleague, David Brancaccio. The world is a dangerous place. It is a fragmented place. Have you ever attended Davos when that wasn't the case? Yet, I'm sure they're going to be talking about that. (laughs) You are quite right. You know, Davos is the absolute, you know, king of platitudinous themes. This year, I think it's cooperation in a fragmented world. But, you know, it's also the gathering that everyone loves to hate. A bunch of CEOs, I think it's 600 this year, heads of state, finance ministers, a whole bunch of the global elite, so to speak, trekking up to a fancy Swiss ski resort and then, you know, talking platitudinously about the important themes to save the world. I get all of that. It's all true. But at the same time, I do actually think it's useful. And it's particularly useful in a world that is, and actually they're right this year, that is fragmenting. It's good to get people talking. But I also slightly think its star is fading a bit. If you look at who's coming, it used to be that there were really serious heavyweights. This year, you know, there's only one G7 leader, Olaf Scholz, the Chancellor of Germany, From the U.S., the delegation, I think, includes the Secretary of Labor and Catherine Tai, U.S. Trade Representative. But, you know, the president's obviously not here. Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, is not coming. I mean, it it feels to me like it's a bit toxic to come here. Um, It's a bit politically toxic. And its star is also somewhat fading as a place that people feel they have to come to. And like any gathering, once I think that sets in, then the question is whether it sort of unravels. A big topic on my program here that we cover as much as we can, is the promise and disruption 
of new technology on the workplace, for instance. And I see you're on a panel. How do we prepare our workers, our future workers, for this disruption? I mean, some people think in the end there'll be more and better jobs. Some people aren't so sure, but everybody agrees it's going to be disruptive, and we're not all that good at bringing the right skills to people at the right time. I think that's right. I think one of the things we've learned, if you look back at the last couple of decades, and don't forget, we are in the middle of this digital technology-led revolution that started a while ago, and it's still got a long way to go. And thus far, uh, we haven't been very good at retraining people. We haven't been very good at giving people the skills they need, a lot of people, to to really succeed in this in this new world. And yet there's going to be a lot more disruption ahead. I mean, the, one of the buzzwords in this year is generative AI models or foundational AI models, you know, chat GPT has really caught the global attention. You know, that potentially is a whole load of different jobs affected, creative jobs affected. Look, I'm, as you would expect, David, ultimately very optimistic. I don't believe that there is a fixed number of jobs. I think all of this technology can augment labor as much as substitute for it. It can help people do different kinds of jobs and do their jobs better. But you're certainly right that we need to you know, rethink education systems, training systems. We have a kind of very 20th century education system for a very different economy. I'm not expecting massive answers on my panel. It's interesting. I did a panel exactly the same one last year. So we'll see whether there's anything different this time. Zanny Minton Beddoes, editor of The Economist. Always good to talk to you. Good to talk to you. That was Marketplace's David Brancaccio. In New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. Increasingly cloudy and mid-40s today. Mostly cloudy and mid-30s tonight. Partly sunny and upper 40s tomorrow. Mostly cloudy and upper 30s to low 40s on Thursday. And there's a chance of rain in the late afternoon. It is 35 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock and the BBC is next. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by William James College's Online Graduate Certificate in School Leadership, a DEI-focused principal prep program. Apply for summer at williamjames.edu. Childhood obesity rates tripled in the past generation. That's prompted new guidance from the American Academy of Pediatrics. This is the first time we're actually using really big data sets and big clinical trials to be able to advise pediatricians on how to manage pediatric obesity. But the suggestions include medicines, even surgery at ever younger ages. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm education reporter Max Larkin, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.